So this past Wednesday was the vernal equinox, and if you were lucky enough to see it, our sweet mother Gaia ushered us into springtime with the gift of a beautiful supermoon. As time marches forward, we're rewarded for braving the long winter with beauty. Here come the little green buds and tips of daffodils peeking out, heralding what is to come. It won't be too long now before you're outside in the sunshine and come upon a tiny blue robin's egg in the grass. We can breathe a sigh of relief, and it can't come soon enough. Writer Parker Palmer has said that spring is a time of mud and miracle. He says, before spring becomes beautiful, it's pug ugly. Nothing but mud and muck. He says, I've walked through early spring fields that will suck the boots right off your feet. A world so wet and woeful, you yearn for the return of snow and ice. Well... <laughs> Of course, this time of year, just hearing the words snow and ice sends prickles down my spine. It tempts me to knock on wood, throw salt over my shoulder, whatever rituals might fend off those terrible things. And the good news is there are many rituals available. For thousands of years, humans have honored the coming of spring with rituals of thanksgiving, many of which center around fertility. Soon we begin planting, if you haven't started already. Soon the earth will become impregnated, and she will birth us a bountiful harvest in give or take nine months. It's during this time that people have celebrated this renewed fertility with eggs and bunnies, eggs as this mystical orb that resembles our goddess moon, Eggs which provide nutrition and burst with life, and bunnies who really seem to have reproduction all figured out. D.H. <laughs> Lawrence, in his wonderful poem, Craving for Spring, encapsulates this feeling of being utterly done with winter. He says, I trample on the snowdrops. It gives me pleasure to tread down the jonquils, to destroy the chill lint lilies, for I am sick of them. Their faint-bloodedness, slow-blooded, icy-fleshed, portentous. I want the fine, kindling wine sap of spring, gold, and of inconceivably fine, quintessential brightness rare almost as beams, yet overwhelmingly potent, strong like the great force of world balancing. Writer Anne Lamott has said in her wonderful book, Help Thanks Wow, that spring is the main reason for wow. Spring is, Lamott says, crazy, being all hope and beauty and glory. And spring, we all know, will eventually outdo herself, the way she always does. Right now, we're in that beginning phase of prim bulbs, birds sweetly chirping in the morning. But we all know that those birds will have talkative, squawking babies. And the weeds will come up and do battle with our perfect little planted flowers in our gardens. And spring will overdo her own glory make a fool of herself again, as she always does. Spring seems to go from tiptoeing to soaring almost overnight, and the energetic, kaleidoscopic party of spring is happening 
whether you're on board or not. To quote Parker Palmer again, the season becomes so exuberant that it caricatures itself. And this can be overbearing and brutal if you're not in the mood. T.S. Eliot famously called April the cruelest month, and Edna St. Vincent Millay agreed, pointing to April's oppressive silliness in her poem Spring. Anyone who suffered a heartbreak, lost a loved one, or endured illness during early spring can relate to these words. To what purpose, April, do you return again? Beauty is not enough. You can no longer quiet me with the redness of little leaves opening stickily. I know what I know. The sun is hot on my neck as I observe the spikes of the crocus. The smell of the earth is good. It is apparent that there is no death, but what does that signify? Not only under the ground are the brains of men eaten by maggots. Life itself is nothing. An empty cup, a flight of uncarpeted stairs. It is not enough that yearly down this hill April comes like an idiot, babbling and strewing flowers. (laughs) April reminds us that the world keeps turning whether we're ready for it or not. Wilson Rowell's gut-wrenching book, Where the Red Fern Grows, begins with the main character witnessing a dogfight in the street. He observes as a pack of dogs running along suddenly turn and attack one of their own. After a few minutes, they leave the attack dog alone and run off. And when you're suffering, life can feel like this, like you've been attacked and left alone, forgotten. And April can come barging into your grief and shake things up and sometimes leave you feeling worse as the bright lights and music of the party goes on without you. Early spring can be cruel. It's true. It can be an idiot, as Edna St. Vincent Millay says. And I think that's because it's so young, so exuberant, so childlike. It really hasn't learned empathy yet. This week, I'll be traveling to Boston to appear before the folks who have the power to declare me in fellowship with the UUA. In fellowship means that once I graduate in May, I will have fulfilled all my requirements. It means I can be ordained. This trip to Boston is the big deal that I've been working toward for years. And so to say I couldn't have done it without you is an understatement. Just about every person in this room has taught me something, whether you realize it or not. I'm in the early springtime of my career as a minister. The seeds are planted, the snow has melted, and the bulbs are beginning to poke their little green and yellow noses through the soil. I'm anticipating the beauty, hoping April will be kind to me, but we're not quite there yet. And so are you in the springtime of being a congregation. This community has all the vibrancy of a newly planted vine. And as it grows, it throws off beautiful tendrils here and there, chalice groups, dismantling racism team, the tables in the atrium, and the ever-ripening fruit of the choir. You are 
a hearty, healthy, living green thing in the center of spring. And it just feels wonderful to pause right in this moment together and breathe and recognize this moment. Recognize that we are here together, balancing on the precipice of spring and all it entails, soaring as just for a moment our paths intertwine mine and yours. There's a gorgeous diversity in what brings us together today. Echoing the diversity that spring herself exhibits in her showy attire, we are all drawn to this space in this moment for so many different reasons. You might be here because you need time for reflection. You might be here because you're being a good example for your kids. You might be here because you need some time away from your kids. (laughs) Maybe you're here because you would feel guilty if you didn't come. There's no wrong reason to be here. All of our motivations and reasons are different and gorgeous. Just as each of us are so different, and it's those differences that make us what we are. In my journey to becoming a minister, I've learned that the eight principles mean more than the sum of their words. Without saying it overtly, I've been talking about the first principle right now. I see you. I witness you here today. You are important, and you have inherent worth and dignity. In addition, I pledge to be kind to you, to be fair to you, to treat you as I would like to be treated or at least I'll try my best. Just like the new spring, I can sometimes embarrass myself with over-exuberance. This is the way the second principle builds off of the first. I don't just see you and witness you. I will be kind to you. And like a mother showing her toddler how to walk, the third principle comes in with another small step. I support you. In your search for the truth, in this place, in this moment, I support the search. I support your unique relationship with the truth. In fact, we all do. Agreeing or disagreeing is not part of this conversation. I support you. Fourth principle, science. The fourth principle isn't quite necessarily as relational as the others. It kind of reminds me of that part in the 12 Days of Christmas song where it goes, five golden rings, the fourth principle, science. (laughs) The fifth principle is completely relational. Our agreement on the importance of the democratic process is the way that we turn the first principle, I see you, From grammatically singular to plural, we hear each other, we see each other. Going beyond the individual, I hear you, now we hear each other corporately. We witness each other. And sometimes this shows up in long, tedious meetings, and that's fine. That's us hearing each other. For the sixth principle, we turn together as a group to the outside world. We turn to our neighbors and to other UUs, and even to those who are hardest to respect and love, as we pointedly practice the first principle toward them. 
as in the Buddhist metta or loving-kindness meditation, where the meditation begins with, may I have peace, then proceeds to, may my loved ones have peace, and then, often with great difficulty, may those who hate me have peace. If you're really advanced, you might eventually get to, may Donald Trump have peace, but that's very advanced, and I'm not there yet. (laughs) The seventh principle reminds us that we are inextricably and mystically connected. It turns the whole thing inside out. After the first six statements, which I summarize as, I see you, I am kind to you, I support you, science. (laughs) We hear each other. We love them. Then we finally say, I am we. Without you, there is no me. We are them. I am we. It's that valuable and venerable African term, Ubuntu. I am myself because of who we are as a group. I am healthy when we are all healthy. I am alive because we are alive. Your suffering matters to me. It matters to all of us. As I see it, the eighth principle is about recognizing that those first seven principles would be enough in a perfect world. But there are terrible, oppressive issues of white supremacy in our culture here and now, which we must recognize and work to weed out. We are reiterating the first three principles, I see you, I am kind to you, and I support you, to and about a specific group of people who are historically ostracized and silenced. And this is not meant to be othering. This is not from the outside. Folks from these disadvantaged groups need to be saying this to themselves and to each other. We all need to be saying it to heal, to begin to heal from the violence of white supremacy. These eight principles work together to bring us together as a community. Like the petals of a flower, they bloom together, displaying a beauty that is so much more than the sum of its parts. We each hold our own version of that flower, each slightly different, each equally radiant. Some of us don't like or use all the petals. Some of us add extra petals to our flowers. It's our diversity that makes us beautiful. Difference, diversity, and the expression of freedom is what makes togetherness matter. If you think about it, if we were all identical, there would be no reason for us to get together. We could all be identical completely separately. And together, we change and grow and cry and heal through our differences, the wild, unpredictable, and sometimes difficult differences of the unique flowers that are our souls, our hearts, ourselves. And this is how we soar. We hold each other's hands and let it happen. We are on a journey, and none of us really knows why or where we are going. We are riding this blue boat through the seemingly endless sky. And wherever we are going, it will be home because we're together. And before we sing Blue Boat Home, (laughs) I'd like to close with some words about anticipated spring from a colleague, Reverend Teresa Cooley. In this time of anticipated spring, let us allow ourselves to extend the anticipation 
I know you're, you're anticipating Blue Boat Home. <laughs> to value the time of budding before blooming, of seeding before sprouting. This is a time of revelation, the revealing of that which is eternal, which we see every year, but still need to be reminded to see it in a new way. This is also the revelation of that which is new. Every spring we encounter something never before seen. It is that very newness which embodies hope and potential for the wholeness which is yet to be. Let us allow spring to unfold slowly that we may appreciate the true mystery of rebirth and renewal. So as I think about these reflections we've been um, considering this morning about spring, about creativity, about what makes your spirit really soar, um, part of what comes to mind is how many of you know the Broadway play Rent, have heard the soundtrack or seen it or watched the movie? Okay, quite a few of you. Uh, There's a lot to say about that play. I'll lift up just one line for you that I think is relevant. It's that the opposite of war is not peace. The opposite of war is is creation. Because war is so deeply destructive that the opposite of such devastation uh, is not peace, is not just stopping war, it's actually rebuilding, reconstructing, recreating. Uh, And in that spirit, one of the best ways, again, some of you I know are creativity rock stars, and that's amazing. Uh, You know, like our art exhibit right now, you know, that guy's an amazing, right, artist that we, we were fortunate to be able to display that art. But if you're looking for how to cultivate it, one of the most consistent tools I've found, have any of you done uh, Julia Cameron's um, workbook, The Artist's Way? Any, any out there? All right. Uh, so I've, uh, I may lead that here eventually. I've done it in congregations before. But it's a 12-week program for getting back in touch with creativity. You can, you know, it's pretty inexpensive. And, and the key, though, of that book, and she says this up front, is this isn't a book you can just read. You actually have to do it. You have to do the things in the book, to uh, that it's not one of those thinking your way into a new way of being in the world. It's a way of acting your way into a new way of being in the world. And the two central practices in that book are morning pages, though you can do the you know, afternoon, evening pages. You, know, you do you. Uh, but she, morning pages uh, and artist dates. So every day for 12 weeks, she invites you to sit down. It takes about 15 or 20 minutes in my experience. You'll have to see if you experiment with what it means for you. But of actually, and I, I think not just producing three pages, it really makes a difference. I found to do it longhand. Like she says, you really need to like move the pencil across the paper, three hand, uh, three pages, um, single space, I use legal pads, uh, but uh, she calls it a brain dump, just stream of consciousness. It can be like, Julia Cameron probably has no idea what she's talking about, why am I doing this, this is probably, you know, whatever is going through your head is fine, just get it out of your head and onto the paper, it does at least two things. One, it gets you past blank page syndrome, so that at least you've got You've got right, something's out there, right? So it just gets things going. And it also gets some of these voices in your head. You'll actually find, most people do, it gets them out of your head and onto the paper. Like you really will find you're different in the world. So do, uh, do morning pages every day. And once a week, take yourself on an artist date. 
So that might be just a leisurely walk in the woods. It might mean coming to our um, used book sale next Sunday and just leisurely giving yourself time to wander through there and see what just kind of leaps out to you and then some time to read that book. Or uh, another really great one is um, anybody, anybody still have copies of their old yearbooks, especially from elementary school, can be really helpful, but the other ones are good too. Uh, but if you have, get or go back and look at pictures. It's a way of getting yourself back in touch with that time before various things may have killed the creativity in you or, or, or the permission to do that, of getting back in touch with who you were back then when it was so easy to dance to music or to draw. Or I told the story in the early service of, it's been a few years ago now, but we were, uh, my wife and I were at my mom's house and we were going through um, some stuff to figure out what we wanted and what to give away. And we came across my middle school art portfolio. And she was, at, and so this, and my wife said, this is actually pretty good. It actually was pretty good, but I really haven't done art since I was like 13. It's just something I haven't, you know, just kind of let go. And so anyway, it's an invitation to get back in touch with those things. I invite you to consider that. What else would you add, um, Megan? Oh, I was just sitting here listening to you and thinking about how um, I, I tend to get so cranky about morning pages, and I tend to be very um, rebellious. You know, I'll sit down with a pen and paper and be like, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to, instead of writing words, I'll draw a picture, or instead of, you know, I'm just going to scribble or something. And, and, and it's like I'm being tricked into actually doing it. You know, so it, it doesn't even have to be words. You you can be rebellious and draw a picture or something. I think she would say that's good too, yeah. right? I actually really appreciate you mentioning that because she's actually was spending a lot of trying to do screenplays and stuff. Like, so I think that's probably mm. why she was drawn to morning pages. And I think if, if one is trying to get in touch with being a visual artist, then doodling would be a great, yeah. you know, doodle pages. I mean, yeah, whatever. or scribble. Like, yeah, or dance, you know, just get out and if you're trying to, do, you know, just get out and dance just, you know, for 20 minutes. Like, whatever. You do you, right? I think that's yeah. helpful. Uh, and the last thing I'll leave you with as we, uh, so I won't put us over time, if we, uh, some of you have heard me say this before. Um, Howard Thurman was an African-American mystic and teacher, really a profound writer and activist and spiritual leader. He used to say, don't just ask yourself what the world needs. That's a really important question, but let's just set that aside for right now. He said, ask yourself instead of what the world needs, ask yourself what makes you come fully alive, to be really engaged, not instead of distant from the world and disaffected, what makes you come really alive? Because he concludes, that's what the world needs. People that are alive and connected and energized, go out and do those things and that will help you co-create the world that we dream about. Or Gail Godwin, she's a wonderful novel called Evensong, where, and there's a line in that where she says, uh, your vocation, which you're called to, is that which makes more of you. And what she means is that sense of there's a lot of things in this world that belittle us, that diminish us, that try to make us less and to, to silence our, our light. And she's saying, what are those things, those people, places, and things that make more of you in a good and abundant and life-giving way? So think on those things. It's an auspicious time to do so in this springtime. Uh, so and as you go into this um, day and into the week to come, continue your journey in love. 
care for one another, care for this one earth, do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had of hope, of love, of peace or joy, whatever glimpse you've maybe had into how you might experiment with creativity in this season of your life, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.